0: Are you ready this morning? This is uh, just a magnificent text we have in front of us as we look at our word for the year, which is love. So would you open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we've got 176 verses to cover this morning. Actually, we're just going to look at one set of uh, eight. And uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 119, 161 through 167. Now. We've talked a bit lately about science and some of the things going on in those communities today. And I couldn't help but think as we began our time in one particular verse uh, of what the word science actually means. It means the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the, what's the next word? Is it up there? Okay, well then take a guess. What do you think that, no. Through the testing of theories against the evidence obtained. That's what science says. There's a proposition made, it's put to the test, and held up against the evidence that has been obtained. Now, we've talked about the fact that, well, evolution demands transitional species by the trillions scattered over the surface of the earth, and there are none. So evolution has failed the test in that regard, and therefore, what we also need to understand this morning, and this is going somewhere, so hang on, uh, the theories and matters of philosophy are all governed by a principle known as bivalence. A bivalence uh, means this, that any theory or truth claim is either true or false. It cannot be neither, nor can it be both. And therefore, if something is said from the scientific community, it's either true or false. It can't be both. And it can't be neither. Well, we've been talking a little bit about microbiology and nucleotide bases and all your other favorite things. And here's why I wanted to use that as a portion of our introduction. The Bible presents itself as a biological organism. It says in Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is what? It's living, and therefore the principle of bivalence will apply to the Word of God as well. It should be testable, and the testings of the propositions made in Scripture can indeed be put to the test, and there is evidence that we can obtain through the close examination of Scripture. The Bible claims to be living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints of marrow and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, the Bible exposes the heart of man. Is that true? Sure, it's done that for all of us. Now, among the many truth claims of the Bible, being living and powerful is a significant claim for a book. For a book to say it's alive is a pretty significant, significant claim, and we ought to put that to the test, because the fact is this is either true or false. can't be neither, and nor can it be both. Now, all books contain information. There's a no-brainer for you. All books contain information, and information comes in two categories. There's what's known as Shannon information. That's just general observational information. The stage is painted black. That's Shannon information. The sky is blue. Well, it will be later. That's Shannon information. That's just general information that needs no testing. It's provable simply by a single observation. Now, within the field of biology and anything that makes a claim of being living, it also contains complex specified information. Now, that would be functional information. A set of instructions that would lead to something further being developed from that. And I think anybody who's bought anything from Ikea (laughs) would know the importance of the information to assemble the 7 million nuts, bolts, screws, pieces uh, involved in an Ikea purchase. That is complex, specified information. Now, all living organisms contain CSI within their genetic structure. And the book that claims to be living contains both Shannon information or general observation information as well as complex specified information. Now, here's an example of what is called CSI uh, from the chapter we're going to look at in, in uh, a few moments. This makes a proposition and then gives the outcome. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Now this is a truth claim that can only be validated by experimentation and observation of the results which would prove the Bible's claim to be alive. So, can any person young or old live a morally pure life and thus cleanse his way by living according to the precepts of God? Yeah. Absolutely. So it's testable and the results are observable and therefore the claim is valid that is made in Psalm 119:9. Now, a little bit of background, and we have to say this this morning because we are about to embark on what is a literary masterpiece, unlike anything else in all of literature. And and it's filled with propositions like we just read in verse 9, and they're either true or false, they can't be neither, nor can they be both. Now, most of us have heard of an acrostic. An acrostic is a string of sentences uh, in which the first letter of each sentence spells out a word. Now, there's a second type of acrostics as well, and that's what you find in the Bible, and they're called alphabetic acrostics. In other words, there's a, in the sequence of an alphabet, in this case Hebrew, the sequential letters are used in order. Now, the famed passage in Proverbs 31 about the search for a virtuous wife is an acrostic. Psalm 25, Psalm 34 is an alphabetic acrostic. The letters, the consonants of the Hebrew alphabet are used in order in the writing of those particular chapters and verses. Now, Psalm 119 is interesting in that it's what's called an octagonal acrostic, or some refer to it as a repeating stanzaic acrostic. There's 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet, and they are repeated eight times, and then the next one comes. Can you imagine writing a book to where the first in English alphabet characters, the first eight lines started with the letter A? The next eight lines started with the letter B. The next eight lines started with the letter C. The next eight lines started with the letter, what's the next letter? D. Well, this is exactly what Psalm 119 is, 176 verses, eight sets of 22 letters in order. It is an absolute proof that this book is alive and authored by God. No human could come up with this without the aid of God. Amen? Every one of these verses in Psalm 119 is related to Hebrews 4.12. It's proof that this book is alive and it is powerful and it is sharp and it cuts down to the joint and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, the reason for this introduction is this. In John 13.17, Jesus said, if you know these things, that's good enough for me. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you what? If you do them. Now, our topic this morning is obviously based on our word for 2022. And our title this morning, I kind of borrowed it from an old DC talk tune, but they actually borrowed it from the rules of grammar. And that is, love is a verb. Our title this morning is, love is a verb. Now, we've all heard verbs described in English class as action words. And what we're going to read this morning from this literary masterpiece of complex specified information are all actionable statements. If we do what they say, we'll be blessed for having done so. Just as Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So let's jump in and find more proof of the Bible's claim to be living and powerful, and not just a book of Shannon information, and prove the point that love is indeed a verb, something we should take action on. Are you ready this morning? Yeah. Stand up, read with me, please. Psalm 119, 161 through 168. 161. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. And Lord, we thank you for your presence here with us today, for we are gathered in your name. And we thank you that we are studying a book that isn't just a series of observations, historical data, or poetry, Uh, in history, Lord, but it is alive, and we pray this morning that what we read would leap off the page and into our hearts and make its way out into the streets of life as we apply and do uh, what we'll find in our text today. We give you thanks in advance for what you'll say. Give us ears, we pray, to hear it and heed it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, the majority position on the authorship of Psalm 119 is King David, a position with which I would agree, and it seems likely because of the internal evidence, some of the things that David covered in other Psalms he mentions in this 176 verse masterpiece. He talks about injustice, he talks about oppression, he prays for victory over enemies, again consistent with other Davidic Psalms. And the overall theme of the Psalm of David is love for the Word of God. And this is why I think it's important for us to understand it, especially in times such as these, maybe in a little bit deeper level, so to speak. Now, this is evidenced by verses like these in this same chapter earlier than what we just read in 47 to 48. David wrote this, And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. 127 says, Therefore I love your commandments more than gold. Yes. Than fine gold. And then in 159, he says, Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. And David mentions his love and praise for God's commandments, his meditation on God's statutes, which means principles. And then in 159, he asks the Lord to consider the fact that because he loves his precepts, which means mandates, he asks the Lord to revive him. Now, we don't know what was going on as a background of David for David at that moment, other than what we read um, in verse 161. And he's just asking the Lord, you know, Lord, I'm honoring your word. I revere your word. I love your word. Revive me because of this. Now, that tells us David knew that love was a verb. Love for God's word was a verb. It was actionable. He expected a reaction to his actions from the divine realm as he related his love to God for God's word. Our first truth this morning is going to come from 161 and 162 where we find a rather timely reminder where David opens with the fact that he is being persecuted by princes without a cause. Now the word princes in the Hebrew can also be translated as governor. (laughs) Purposeful pregnant pause. It, It can also mean head persons or people in places of power is what's implied there. And David is saying he is experiencing persecution from within his own government. Remember, he was the king. And the way he handled government persecution was to stand in awe of God's word and rejoice as one who finds God's word to be a great treasure. And listen, whatever's going on in today, in our world today, and it's a mess. It's a mess and getting messier by the day. We need to deal with this. And the oppression and persecution that we're experiencing by standing in awe of God's word, Because it stands fast in the heavens. It is still living and powerful. It is still going to prevail. And it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And it will never return void. And we read this recently and need to mention it again this morning. At least in part, I mentioned, I think it was last week, Psalm 19, 7-11 are some of my favorite verses. Um, In the Psalms, but 9-11 through says this, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, just like we just read. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is what? Great reward. Again, adhering to the word of God is actionable, and it has a benefit, as Jesus said. If you know these things, the blessings come from... Doing them. And as we read in 159 a moment ago, David expected that keeping God's word would be rewarding. Is it? Absolutely. And listen, there's an interesting subtlety we don't want to miss in verse 162, and from which we'll draw our first reminder that love is a verb and therefore actionable. And that is that the word translated as treasure is the same word elsewhere in the Old Testament that's translated as booty. It can be translated as spoil. It can be translated as plunder. Now what this implies is that victory over oppression and persecution of the princes and government authorities was expected by David because he adhered to God's word. Now our first of our three observations this morning is just that it's a reminder. I hope it's an encouragement. It has uh, an element of being an exhortation to us. And here's what we need to remember, listen, Present circumstances are not an indication of our ultimate future. Present circumstances are not an indication of our ultimate future. David said, I'm being persecuted by people in government positions, and yet they're the ones that are going to get plundered. They're the ones that are going to have to deal with the actions of God. And listen, I don't know if any of you watched the lineup the other night, but I got a little flustered with one of the stories, just in the sense that it made me so mad... um, it's happening in California. Do you know that the state legislature in California two days after 19 children and two teachers were executed in the state of Texas? Our state legislator voted that teachers no longer have to report to authorities when a student threatens them. Two days after 19 kids were killed. The idiot, I mean the people in, in the state legislature said, you know what, you don't, the teacher doesn't have to report them. And, and do you know why the state legislature said that teachers don't have to report students? Because a lot of the students that get reported are minorities. And we don't want them to be intimidated by a police presence early in their life experience. And you know what, I, I'm just going to tell you because um, I'm, I'm ashamed of it in a proud way. That was a joke, by the way. (laughs) I'm not ashamed of it at all. But it got to me to the degree where I looked at the camera and I said, Listen, fellow Californians, quit voting for stupid people. (laughs) Because if you are a big enough jerk to vote for something like that two days after 19 kids were killed, you got no business being in a place of power in this state or anywhere else. And then I read this and wrote this on Friday and Saturday. You know what? In the midst of all this ignorance and stupidity and lunacy, we're still stand in awe of God's Word. It is still what it is. It will never change. And someday everything is going to change. And David was being persecuted, yet he knew that that would only lead to a future plundering for his persecutors if they didn't repent and come to God. And listen, our love for God and his word is going to yield a glorious future, even though we live in a perilous present. Things are going to change someday. And listen, we coined a phrase here some years ago, um, way back when we were on 6th Street, uh, over in Tustin, that we need to live as future first thinkers. We always need to keep our mind on the future and where we're going. Because if all you do is look around and all you do is see the circumstances around us, it can be overwhelming, right? It can be discouraging. And let, let, yet David says, when I look to your book, I rejoice. and I'm in all the things that are written there. And that's how we handle the situation that we're in right now. And, and let me say this, it's just kind of popped in my mind, and uh, our, our next set of verses will bring clarity to this, but I want to introduce it here. There's a lot of people today that kind of mock Christians saying that they're being persecuted today. And a lot of people within the church say, we're not suffering persecution. And that statement, in essence, is saying that persecution is limited to having to attend an underground church, or uh, run for your life, or hide underground, or Uh, be threatened with uh, losing your life. And and, that's all that persecution is. Now, I completely disagree with that because being killed for your faith is not the exclusive form of persecution. And we'll prove that in a moment. Listen, after all, we have to remember the martyr goes directly into the presence of the Lord where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So where's the downside of that? Well, listen, persecution and what we are experiencing today is being silenced about your faith. And I believe the greatest persecution that has happened in the course of church history, at least as far as its reach and the numbers of people it has impacted, is being pressured and socially shamed into silence about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it today. Could you imagine going on social media today and posting online that homosexuality is a sin? Could you imagine doing that? Do you know what would happen? Well, if you don't, I can tell you. Uh, You would receive hate mail and threats, and you would be told that you're not loving, and you would be called a bigot, and you would be called a hater when it's not your position, it's God's. And so the church today, I believe, is being persecuted through social pressures and bullying, and this has done more damage to anything than anything in church history. After all, persecution spread the gospel. The martyrs spread the gospel. When people were in fear for their lives, it filtered out the church and true, solid Bible-believing Christians while they were on the run. And many died for their faith, were sharing their faith while they were on the run. Satan thought, you know, I'm going to start persecuting this church, and all I did was spread it. And Jesus even, you know, talked about Antipas, his faithful martyr, uh, who was persecuted and died. And you know, Antipas, I think Antipas' name is kind of interesting because it means against all. And it was said that when Antipas was being martyred, his martyrs said or those who would martyr him said, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And Antipas said, well, then I am against the whole world. And listen, if we have to stand alone and yet we're standing on God's word, that's the only place for us to stand. Because it is alive, it is powerful. And listen, think about the world today and the opinion of the world about the church. We're charlatans, we're fools, we're weak-minded, we're haters, and most of all, we're powerless, and what we believe means nothing. And yet, if you put it to the test, it proves what it says. And you can take action on the things that the Bible says, and they will prove themselves to be true. So what do we do in times such as these? We stand in awe and rejoice at God's word. Because God's word has told us this. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that speaks against you in judgment you shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says who? Says the Lord. Now listen, some would say immediately, oh, this was written to Israel. No, this was written to Israel about God's character. Does God's character change? Is Israel the only servants of the Lord? Are We the people who have received an imputed righteousness, our righteousness is from the Lord. So this is for all servants of the Lord who have an imputed righteousness, a righteousness they neither deserve nor could earn, but was placed in their account by another Listen, if there's something written to Israel that is about the nature and character of God, we are free to appropriate it as our own because He doesn't change. So what that tells us is that there is coming a day of not a great reset, but a great reversal. And God is going to turn things around. Jesus is coming again. David said, you know, my peers are persecuting me for no reason. But my heart stands in awe of the Word of God. And therefore, I can rejoice knowing that someday the tables will be turned and current circumstances are no indication of my future. And he found this in the treasury of God's word. And he wrote it down for us. Now, listen, In 163 to 165, we find further proof of what we just said. 163 says, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day, I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those. Here's our verse for the month. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. I like the word nothing, don't you? Now, the proximity of this double expression, I hate and abhor your lying, followed by the fact that uh, David loved his law, tells us a couple of things. One, the fact that it's so close to being persecuted by princes without a cause, tells us that lying about someone is a form of persecution. This is what David was experiencing. There were lies being told about him. I think we can be sure there were lies being told to him as the king of Israel. We know uh, there was a divided kingdom. We know David spent a a great deal of time dealing with betrayal and uh, the other things we know about his uh, family life history. And he hated it. He hated what was going on. And then he drew a contrast between he and his persecutors by saying, but I love your law. So if he says, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law, that tells us that lying is against God's law. Hello, that lying is against God's law. Now, then he says, I I praise you seven times in 164. And some see this as literal. Some say, well, David set aside seven times a day to praise the Lord. And and others say, well, this is a figure of speech. And I believe the latter of those two things is true. I think what David is saying is the same thing he wrote in Psalm 34.1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Being the number of com- seven being the number of completeness. I think David is just saying, you know what? I'm going to praise God all the time. All the time. Seven times a day. All day long. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Even when persecuted without a cause. And we might even say for David, even during immense peer pressure. Since David was royalty too. He continued to praise the Lord because he knew the Lord was a righteous judge. And I thought Spurgeon had a good observation here, and I copied it, and it'll be on the screen from these verses. He said this, if we praise God when we're persecuted, our music will be all the sweeter to him because of our constancy in in suffering. If we keep clear of all lying, our song will be the more acceptable because it comes out of pure lips. If we never flatter men, we shall be the better condition for honoring the Lord. And Spurgeon obviously had a masterful way with words. That's why he was called the Prince of Preachers. And his words are the perfect segue to our verse for the month as the things he said in light of King David's words, the result is great peace for those who love the Lord's law. And nothing causes them to stumble. You can't stumble if you follow God's word, right? Because there are no hurdles in God's word. The devil tries to throw up roadblocks, but by the power of the Word of God, we can overcome them. Those weapons formed against us will not prosper, bring about their end result. Nothing can cause us to stumble. Not anyone named Biden. Or Newsom. Or Pelosi. Or Schumer. Not even Ocasio-Cortez or Talib can cause us to stumble. Now, here's what we need to remember about love being an action word or a verb. Listen this morning. It's easier to do what you love than what you have to. It's easier to do what you love than what you have to. If we look at God's Word through the lens of a series of restrictions, then we're going to see His law as lessening our life experience and doing what the Word says as some type of obligation. We might even view it with some type of penal attitude, like, well, you know, uh, I'm a sinner. Jesus forgave me, but I still have this lesser experience because of my past. Now, think about this. Have you ever been willing to do something or at least were not opposed to doing it until somebody asked you to? Oh, don't leave me hanging up here. You've all done that, too. You know, we're, yeah, you know, I think I better get that done. And then somebody says, you know what you need to do? And then they say the same thing. I ain't doing it. That's human nature. Now, changing that perspective around depends upon, at least in our spiritual life, depends upon our view of the Word of God. And we can come to the place where, like David, we can say, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That is, if we view and love God's Word and see it as a path to freedom and strength, and a path that keeps us from stumbling, our perspective is going to be completely different. And this is why David would start in the preface psalm, the very first psalm, six verses. We're going to read the whole psalm. David says this and draws a a contrast worth noting. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in what? The The law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He, here's the result of being that kind of person... He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall what? Prosper. Now here's the contrast. The ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall what? Perish. This is the contrast between the blessed life For the blessed man and the ungodly. The blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a well-watered tree, always bearing fruit. The ungodly are not so. They're like fruitless chaff, driven by the wind, and they will not stand in the day of judgment. And listen, if we look at the word of God through the lens of knowing what God says is best and results in a blessed and fruitful life, it's not going to be too hard to do what he says, even when he says hard stuff. And he does say hard stuff. We've been talking about some lately. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Persecute you. Say all manner of evil against you falsely. Jesus will close out the Beatitudes with, for my name's sake. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn your left. Someone compels you to go a mile, go two. That's not easy stuff. But if we love the Word of God we can say, you know what, there's a blessing on the other side of that. Yeah. At the end of that second mile, because I did what God said, even though I didn't want to go the second mile, didn't want to go to the first. If you remember, the Roman soldier could compel someone to carry their armor and their shield for up to a mile by law. Jesus said, don't go one, go two. And he said that to people who didn't want to go one. But at the end of the one and the end of the two, there would be a blessing why? because it's obedience to the word of God. And, and Psalm 138, I read Psalm 138, I thought, where can I cut this off? Because it's kind of long. It's eight verses, so I decided we can't cut it off. We're going to read the whole thing. So I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, the gods of the nations, the false idols, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. This is David again. I will praise your name for your loving kindness and your what? Truth for it. Now listen to this. For you have magnified your word above all your name. You know why the Bible would say that? Because if your word's no good, neither is your name. If your word isn't true, then your name is mud. And nobody's, when they hear your name, they're going to think of liar, deceiver, dishonest, unfaithful, or whatever. So his word is magnified above all his name because his word being true establishes the claims of his name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me, David said, and made me bold with strength. Where? In my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. When they hear the words of your mouth, yes, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord, Though, uh, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. We should pause and say, thank you, Lord, or something for that. But the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Again, look at the beautiful heart of David and what he expects from the Lord. And even though he walks in the midst of trouble, he expected the Lord to revive him and stretch out his hand against his adversaries and save him and perfect or complete that which concerns him. Why? Because the Lord's mercies endure forever. Now listen this morning. We don't obey God because we had better. We obey God because it is better. It's better to obey him. It's a better life. We love Him. We love the Word. And when love is a driving force behind our actions, it's not going to be like mowing the lawn with 110 degrees outside and you don't want to. It's going to be like sitting by the pool with a cool drink under the shade and enjoying the day. It's something we would rather do. Great peace have those who love His law and nothing causes them to stumble. Amen? Now look at 166-8. through Lord, I hope for your salvation and I next word, do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. And our section ends with the counsel from David as to what to do in times of persecution by princes, or times of trial or oppression of any kind, and in these times of trouble, Two things need to be done. We hope in God, and the second is do what is right. We hope in God and continue to do what is right. And in verse 166, David gives us a preview, really, of what Paul would later write in Ephesians when he says he hopes for the Lord's salvation and he does his commandments. And Paul framed the same type of thinking like this in the famed passage of Ephesians 2, where he said in 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now David places things in the same order as Paul. Salvation comes first then good works. Because good works can't earn you salvation. Salvation is the gift of God, amen? But good works are not something that Christians should not practice or walk in. And David adds that his soul keeps the Lord's testimonies and he loves them exceedingly. And finally, in verse 168, he says, he keeps the Lord's precepts and the Lord's testimonies because there's nothing hidden from the Lord. The Lord sees everything we all do. Now, having identified that the soul keeps the Lord's testimonies and impairs that with keeping his precepts, we can understand that what David is saying is that he lives for the Lord outwardly and practically and he keeps the Lord's doctrines inwardly. In other words, he believes the word of God and acts upon them. And again, we see the marriage of righteousness by faith and good works expressed from the heart is what David is highlighting here. And Spurgeon made another interesting comment as I was uh, studying through uh, his commentary on this particular passage this past week. He said, those who place the least reliance on good works are usually the ones who have the most of them. Those who place the least reliance on good works are those who understand fully good works aren't going to save them are those who have the most of them. Now, obviously, this statement has an equal opposite, where those who don't believe good works are any part of the Christian experience are going to have the least of them, simply based on what it is they believe. Now, the curious thing about that particular belief that you know good works don't have a uh, any application to the Christian experience, is that that doesn't apply to other things we love. When you love somebody, you're always thinking about ways to please them. When you love somebody, you're always thinking about ways to show you care for them. I mean, come on, think about this. When you love pizza, you're always thinking about ways to get it. Right? I mean, your love affects your actions. Now, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works, resulting in glorifying your Father who is in heaven. Now remember, Jesus was using an illustration that would be well understood in that day. Have you ever heard the phrase, somebody being worth their salt? That dates back to Roman times, because soldiers were often paid in salt. Because that's what you packed and preserved your meat in. And if somebody wasn't worth their salt, they weren't worth their pay. It's also true that when a salt would lose its preserving influence, it would be thrown out on many of the uh, Roman highways and be used as kind of a top coat uh, and just be trampled underfoot by men. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If you're not being salt, you're just going to get run over by the world. Is that happening today? Yeah. Well, listen, think about this. When you love your job and enjoy doing it, you're going to seek to excel at it. But all of a sudden, in the thinking of some within the church today, when you love the Lord, there's going to be no manifestations of that love in the form of good works because you're saved by grace through faith. Yet in everything else that we love, there is behavioral impact and expression. That doesn't make sense. How can you be salt and light without some type of outward expression based on inward love for God and His Word? And listen, here's our closing reminder that love is a verb. Think about this. Simplistic but true. Love changes how and why you do anything. Love changes how and why you do anything. I mean, think about when a young person falls in love. Everything in their life begins to circulate around that relationship. Even other relationships that they have begin to change. Activities change. Even the person in love changes the way they act in order to Please the one that they love. You follow this progression a bit further. What happens? Say the couple then becomes married and kids come. Everything changes again. Why? Love. We've had a change in our house lately. He's 10 weeks old, his name is Louie. And he's our fur baby. And I tell you what, our house has changed. And he took over. And Why do we Terry get up in the middle of the night? She says, I want to get up with him. I want to take him out potty and all that stuff. Why why is she doing that? Because she loves him. Why do I have scars all over my hand? (laughs) Because I love him. He's he's a dog. You know, but he's he warms our heart. And 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 love changes how why you do anything. Anything that you love, there's going to be an impact on your behavior. So Why is all of a sudden God excluded from that which is normal in the rest of life? It just doesn't make any sense. Now, the obvious follow-up on this is why wouldn't it change how and why we do things when we love God? John the Beloved said this in 1 John 2, 3, and 6. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, yet does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we're in him. He who says he abides in him also himself, ought ought himself also to walk just as he. He's Jesus. Walk. Walk is a, a metaphor for life. Now, in 318 of 1 John, the very next chapter, John would say, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And then in then his, his second letter in verse 6, he would say, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now, listen, we got to think about who's writing here. This is the man to whom Jesus from the cross entrusted the care of his mother Mary and said to him, behold your mother, and to his mother, behold your son." This is a man banished to the Alapatmas for the testimony of Jesus, some say, for as long as three years, as a 90 year old man banished to a penal colony on a deserted island. This was a man who was entrusted with the words of the last books of the Bible and the most detailed description of the end of the church age in the 70th week of Daniel. And what he said over and over and over in the three epistles he writes is that love is something that is expressed outwardly, both in the form of keeping God's commandments and good works done in truth, or deeds done in truth. Listen, today is Pentecost. We're 50 days from Easter. We're 50 days from the greatest demonstration of love in the course of human history. Romans 5, 8, passages it like this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ, what, died for us. Do you see a proclamation of love? And a demonstration of love? Shouldn't we have that too? If Christ demonstrated His love and the Christian, the word Christian means Christ-like, then should we not have outward tangible expressions of our love for Christ in the form of keeping His commandments and good works to bring Him glory? I mean, it only makes sense. And and listen, we don't have a sign-up for ministries going on after the service or anything like that. But the fact is, listen, love changes how and why we do anything. And think about the whole of Scripture in in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where the Shema is recorded, uh, where Israel is told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today, and here Moses is saying through the inspiration of the Spirit, what I'm saying to you is actionable. Do something with this. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. The Word of God is always to be on their minds. Meditate on it day and night is how the Bible puts it. Joshua 1, and 9 says it. Psalm 1 says it. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. In other words, they govern the things that you put your hands to. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And I don't think that means strapping a box to your forehead. I think that's where your prefrontal cortex is where you make decisions. In other words, the word of God is to dictate and determine all your decisions. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, everything you do in and out of the house needs to be governed by the word of God. Now, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 22, in light of the Shema and the adjustment he made. Jesus can change the word of God because Jesus says the word of God. And he put it like this when the Pharisees heard he'd silence the Sadducees. They gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment, the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The Shema says, Strength. Jesus says, With your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law. And the prophets. Now, why did Jesus move from strength to mind? Because anything that you're convinced of in your mind and that you love in your mind, it's going to affect all your actions. Anything we love, anything that is solidified in our mind and has expressions of love surrounding it uh, is going to start there and make its way out until the rest of life. And what we need to observe from these two readings is from the giving of the law to the fulfillment of the law and beyond, love has always been a verb. It's always been an action to be taken, not simply an emotional feeling. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Teach your children to do the same. Talk about those things. When you go out, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, bind them and let them dictate the actions of your hands. Be constantly on the thoughts of your mind and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You're going in and going out. It should all be about the word of God. Jesus said, you know, this is what the whole law and prophets is about. It's about love. And if we love the word like David did, we'll see the results of which David wrote. This book we study is claimed to be living and powerful. And we put it to the test. And the results are observable. And the complex specified information that we have examined has been proven to be true by changed lives by the millions for over 2,000 years. And therefore, we can trust in this book. Now, the Bible has a perfect track record regarding its propositions and theories. It's either true or false. Can't be neither, nor can it be both. They're all true. Every word of God is true, right? Everything, all the sayings of God, promises of God are in Christ Jesus. Yes, and in him. Amen. Including this one. Revelation 22, 12 to 15. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my what? My what? My reward is with me. To give to everyone according to what? His work. Who do you think is behind having pastors tell Christians that good works don't matter? Well, Jesus said he's rewarding everyone according to their... So who's going to say you don't need works? You don't need works to save you. They can't save you. But once you're saved, God puts you to work. That's what Ephesians 2, 8-10 says. And listen... As he goes on, Jesus speaking, he gives his credentials. He first makes a claim that is exclusive to God. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then he gives this exhortation, blessed are those who do his commandments, consistent with what John the Beloved wrote and what Jesus said earlier in the gospel, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city, but... Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a what? A lie. David says, I hate and abhor lying. And we should too. Now, Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. And I'm coming with rewards. Now, he's coming a lot quicker than when John wrote this. Because the word quickly actually means suddenly. Coming without notification. Instantly, I'm going to be there. A moment and a twinkling of an eye, you're going to see me. Could that happen today? Yeah. You bet it could. Could it happen tomorrow? Yeah. Sure. Could happen anytime. time. So, I say we get to work. Yeah. And we do those things that God has called us to do. And not because we're trying to earn anything. But we want to bring him glory. We want to exalt his name. And his word said, and if I can just break it down to nuts and bolts, street level, his word said, get to work. I prepared things for you. Now do them. You want to be blessed by me? Do what I say. Didn't Jesus say that? He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. so let's do them. You know, I don't want to borrow from Nike, but just do it. Do what he says. It's the best way to live. Amen. I think we all know we've lived for ourselves and done our own thing before. And again, that's a popular say, hey, do your own thing, man. Do, your, nah, do God's thing. It's better. It's a lot safer, too. And there's a lot more blessing on it than doing your thing.